Shall we just pray before we look at that together? We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is your son sent into the world that you made to claim what is yours. And so we pray today that his spirit would be at work in us, calling us back to belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone came to me recently and said to me, and you always have got to love it when the sentence begins, people in church are talking about... No, this sentence could end many ways. You hope it's going to end with something like, your wonderful sermons. Or um, your dashing good looks. In fact, how did it end? People in church are talking about your yellow shoes. Um, I think it is probably a sign of what conformists we are that the fact that I have yellow trainers is an act of great anarchy in our church life. Probably shows we all need to get out and be a bit more anarchic. I think in another life, had I not been taught to obey my uh, seniors my whole life, I could have been an anarchist. It's tempting, isn't it? There's plenty of times I've been in the queue in McDonald's and thought I'd really love to throw a bin through the window at this moment. Uh, And I think that the reason that anarchy is such a sort of popular movement is because all of us, when we're told, even the most conformist of us, even if you'll only ever wear bra and trainers, you'll always, when someone starts telling you what to do, we have this sort of thing of like, who gives you the right to tell me what to do? Who are you to come along and start telling me how to behave? Well, let me tell you another story about me. The seas of destruction. This is the River Loon in Lancaster, and I once nearly drowned in this river. Now, that's a whole other story I don't have time to tell you. Uh, but I didn't, <laughs> here. And, uh, but when on that day, when I with a whole other group of people fell into the freezing water, and then we managed to crawl out, and someone called an ambulance, and we were all mildly hypothermic. It's a good story, isn't it? Um, The ambulance man arrived, the paramedic, came and found us lying there, and he said, okay, we need to warm you up, so get into the ambulance, we need to strip off your clothes, and we're going to blow hot air over you. Quick, get into the ambulance, do it now. And he basically said, I did not on that occasion say, who gives you the right to tell me what to do? It was not an appropriate response on that occasion. All of my anarchic tendencies were sapped out of me by the real need in that moment I had to listen to that person. It was more important than my deep felt desire to do what I like. More important than my individuality, my personality, my freedom to make choices. I urgently had to listen to him. Now that's what this section of Mark's gospel is really all about. As we said last week, it all takes place on one day near the end of Jesus' life on earth. And he's saying and doing some pretty offensive things. But if you uh, are getting to know Mark's gospel, one of the things about the way Mark writes is he's very careful in how he puts things together. Something is always beside something else for a reason. So we've had this section beginning with the religious leaders saying to Jesus, who give you authority to do this, to talk to us? Wait, see that thing again? Who gives you the right to speak to us like that? And Jesus takes on their questions. So the passage we saw last week is basically Jesus saying to them, I am the son of the God who made everything. Who gave me the right to tell you what to do? God did. That was last week's passage. And then in a few weeks' time, in chapter 7, we get Jesus saying, 
I am the Messiah, the promised one God said would rule the world years ago. I am him. So who gave me the right? God did. He made me the king of everything. Have that section. And then in between, we have this person who is the son of God, who is the king who rules over everything, saying, what does that mean is important? If Jesus is the son of God, if he is the greatest ruler ever to come into the world, and so we have to listen to him about what matters, what does matter? And I think um, what we're going to find is we don't really like some of the stuff he says. We're going to find ourselves saying, who are you to be talking to me like that, telling me that this matters and this doesn't matter? Whoever you are today, as we dig into what Jesus says, he will ruffle your feathers. But if he is who he says he is, then he is the paramedic to our suffocating lives. He tramps over our sense of what's important. We need to get over it when we don't like being told what to do. We will be tempted to say, this is important to me, Jesus, and you're not fitting in with what I think is important. And Jesus will basically say, because of who I am, what I say matters more. Okay, here's the first one. It's more important than politics. Verse 13, these two groups of people, it's a strange beginning to the story that these two groups of people come along to talk to Jesus together, because these two groups of people really hate each other. It's a classic example of my enemy's enemy is my friend. But the Pharisees and the Herodians were not friends. But they both hate Jesus. They get that his claim to authority is threatening something that's important to them. And they ask this question to catch him out. Should we pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? That was not just a sort of trick question. It was a really important question. This area of the world under the time was under occupation by an empire. And all the moral dilemmas that come with that, should we resist this evil empire, should we collaborate with them? And that all bubbled up through this very unfair tax. Now that's a picture of a pool tax demonstration in Liverpool when a nice lady called Margaret Thatcher tried to impose a pool tax here. Uh, People didn't like it. It was even worse in the Roman Empire because the tax was not based on your property. It was just based on the fact that you exist. So it's basically the Roman Empire saying, oh, you've had the misfortune to be born. We're going to tax you on it. Even Margaret Thatcher's poll tax is fairer than that. She did get to vote. This was just a cruel way of making money out of oppressed people. And in the run-up to this event... This guy called Judas the Galilean, who's a bit of a sort of, like, rebellious type, gathered a whole lot of people, said, let's occupy the temple and say, we're not going to pay the tax. He tore the place up, said, we are not going to pay your tax, Caesar. And Caesar was like, I have quite a lot more soldiers than you, and set them in, and they were all bayoneted and their heads put on sticks. And so Jesus walks into this, fermenting, revolutionary atmosphere, teaching there's a king who's higher than Caesar. Well, if that's true, this tax is the defining issue. You can't answer this without winding someone up. 
And potentially, Jesus, how you answer, you could be setting fire to this sort of tense, dry tinder heap that is Jerusalem under occupation. And so you had the Pharisees. They grudgingly paid the tax but said, we shouldn't collaborate with the Romans. We should protect our authentic God-given way to life. They were conservatives. And then there are the Herodians. They basically said, oh, well, Caesar set up this king called Herod, and we should just obey him, pay the tax, get on with it. It will allow us to do the things we want to do. They were the sort of liberals. It's very common debate still today. Christian conservatives think we need to protect our moral, good, godly way of life and influence the state that way. Christian liberals tend to think that the state is a separate thing and you should keep the state quiet by submitting to some stuff you don't agree with in order to get the freedom for doing what you do want to do. This divide still exists. But in this context, it was heightened and tense and awkward. It was not just a debate for Sunday evening at church. The answer... Well, if you say, do pay the tax, you're saying, our nation doesn't matter that much. If you say, we shouldn't pay the tax, well, you're saying, we should launch another suicidal rebellion. The stakes are high. What will Jesus, this figure claiming authority over everyone, what will he say about this political issue? Look at verse 15. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. One of the books I was reading about this passage described Jesus' reply using this word that I'd never come across before, gnomic, which makes me think of like like a gnome. Um, I don't think that's what it means. Well, it doesn't. I looked it up, Google, and all that. It's basically, Jesus' reply here doesn't really seem to answer the question. I'm still none the clearer about whether he thinks they should pay the tax or not. It's mysterious. It's sort of intriguing. He holds up the coin and says, listen, there's a picture of Caesar on this coin. Some stuff belongs to Caesar, clearly. Now, that's sort of quite radical for us. Jesus saying, you need to have some respect for the state you live in, no matter how bad it is. You'll find that line of thought, actually, all the way through the New Testament. Christianity is not a movement, generally, that encourages political revolution. Some stuff is Caesar's. But that seems quite unfair in the face of this totally unfair tax in this broken world. Couldn't Jesus have said, come on, let's rise up against our oppressors? Why not say that? And Jesus says, because it's more important to give to God what is God's. If the image of Caesar on the coin makes it his... Jesus teaches us that God's image, what God is like, is imprinted onto every human being. Jesus is much more interested 
in people realizing that they are made in God's image and giving themselves to God, even than he is in the very real injustices of the world. I think that's quite shocking, because every political cause there is thinks Jesus is on their side. I met a Christian recently who said, the only verse in the Bible that matters is this, walk justly and love mercy. You know, what God wants for us is to behave justly. But it seems to me here Jesus is saying, it's not that I don't want that, there's just something that's much more important than that. Accepting Jesus' rule will change your politics, but the idea that Jesus came to bring justice here and now in this world is just wrong. He could have done that at this point. Unlike Judas the Galilean, he could have called on a host of angels to impose his rule on the world. But Jesus says there's something more important even than that. You yourself, realizing that your life belongs to God because it bears his image and giving that life back to him. That dwarfs in importance even the most important political issues in the world. Shocking. Well, what does all that mean for us? Well, I think it doesn't mean Christians should withdraw from politics. Every Christian has a very deep, very pressing responsibility to work out what it means to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, to properly work out their relationship with the government. And to be honest, many people who've trusted Jesus are very lazy about that, just don't think about politics. And there's no excuse for that. Where you can influence the government, and we can do that, and in world history that's pretty unusual, you must do that for good. So we, in this place at this time, have to think about that. But Jesus' kingdom, Jesus bringing God's presence into the world, does not come that way. There are forever foolish Christians trying to change the world by getting the right person into political power. And Jesus says, listen, you personally giving yourself to God is much more important. That is what Jesus came to do and enable. He says, the image of God in us is broken, but is still there. And Jesus came to bring us back. Listen, whatever political issue matters to you here today the most... It's more important that you do business and get at peace with God. It's more important for you to engage your friends in Jesus' offer of getting right with God than it is to change the world. Don't get me wrong, coming back to God will change you into someone who affects the world, but one thing does matter more than the other. Someone we talk about here a lot at uh, Christchurch, because we love his model, is William Wilberforce, who is a Christian who campaigned for the abolition of the slave trade in the uh, 19th century. And, uh, 18th and 19th century. And 
Uh, he was very involved in politics and had worked out very carefully what does it mean for me to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It means to use my influence to get rid of the slave trade. The interesting thing about Wilberforce for our purposes today is uh, we also have access now to all of his personal notebooks. And what you will find in Wilberforce's personal notebooks where he keeps his most private and significant thoughts are his list of friends who are not Christians. And beside each one, he used to write little notes about saying, I think if I talk to them about this, they might be persuadable. Or this person seems to be a Christian, but is not really living it out. Maybe I should talk to them to help them in this way. But you see, that model, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give yourself, your heart, your allegiance, what matters to God. People coming back to him is what matters. Political is a wide term, isn't it? Political can just mean, for example, all this pressure my parents are putting on me to achieve is stopping me coming back to Jesus. And God says it's more important you come back to him than fulfill your parents' expectations. Well, what about this controversial example? There are all sort of political categories for people that didn't exist 50 years ago. Have you noticed that? So all the sexual identity categories we have, we say we're straight or gay or trans. They're all political identities. 50 years ago, people wouldn't have known what they meant. It's about people getting together to make political change. And often justified. We want the world to be better for people. But there are plenty of people saying, because I'm in that political category, oh, I couldn't consider Jesus. This political category matters more to me. And Jesus is a safer place to have yourself than that political identity. He says, I have authority, and I'm saying it's more important that you give yourself to God. It's all pretty offensive. You can see why they bristled at it. Who gives you the right? Well, I could answer that question, actually, in lots of ways, because I'm not claiming the right. I'm claiming it for Jesus. I could say, listen, Jesus has outlasted every political movement and empire since he existed. And I could say to you, Jesus, what Jesus is offering is good and better than any political leader. And I could say to you that Jesus proves he's trustworthy because he actually gives himself away to serve others. But the real question here is not, do I agree with Jesus? That's an irrelevant question. The question is, is Jesus God's son sent from heaven? Is Jesus the one promised by God throughout the whole Bible to rule forever? The question is not even really what is he saying. The question is who is saying it? And if he is who he says he is, then what he says matters more. Maybe you're not into politics and you've had a little mental holiday in this bit of the sermon. You don't know your Brexit from your NATO, your Theresa from your Jeremy. Well, probably then, if you're that type of person, the next assertion of importance might grab you more. Jesus says he's more important than marriage. Here come another group in verse 18, the Sadducees. They are not as much into politics, they're more into theology. And they couldn't believe 
that people would accept what Jesus seemed to be promising, which is there is life after death, a new creation coming. Jesus talks about it all the way through Mark. There's a day when God will judge the world and you will either live with him forever or not. These people were just like, what a load of nonsense. Who these days believes in life after death? Maybe you've met some people like that. That was the Sadducees. They came to Jesus and they were really saying, what we'd prefer is a sermon about how we can improve our family values. They're not much into the big empire politics. They're into like marriage and family. And they say, Jesus, you should be pro-marriage and kids and family. And your stuff about this new world, it's distracting from that. Let us tell you this story to show how stupid it is, given that family matters so much, to think there's a new world. And they tell the story about their law and this patriarchal culture. Single women couldn't hold property, so if someone died and uh, the wife was left as a widow, their brother was expected to marry the woman so that she could be safe. And in this unfortunate story they tell... The woman has had seven husbands in the same family die. Some sort of congenital defect, obviously. And you can hear their sarcasm, can't you, in verse 23. You can hear the scare quotes. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Here's a picture of the confused woman at the resurrection. Seven husbands gathering, gathered around. Who's she going to be married to, Jesus, in this new creation that you say is coming. She's been married seven times. Who will be her husband then? Given that marriage is this important thing and the very point of life is to be romantically fulfilled and given that there's nothing more important than finding a life partner, what you're saying doesn't really fit with that so what you say must be wrong. Well, there's nothing gnomic about Jesus' answer this time. I love it. Verse 24. Summary. You are wrong. Very direct. Are you not mistaken? And he says it in the most offensive way possible. Are you not mistaken because you do not know the scriptures? We're talking to theologians here. So he basically says, you haven't even read your own book. I like it. Direct. He basically says, you have not clocked that marriage is temporary. It just lasts in this life. In the new world I am bringing, there will not be marriage. You're limiting God to what you know of this world, which is, let me be frank, stupid. Now, lots of people ask me to speak at their weddings, including some people who are here. I try and get more and more outrageous at each one to see if it ever means people will stop asking me to do their weddings. It hasn't worked so far. One thing I always say, and mothers of the bride tend to like this one least, is to say, while this is a lovely day, it is a feeble, pathetic, rubbish picture of the real wedding that is to come. Mothers of the bride, don't like that. Like, what about the pink roses I chose? The Bible describes the new world where we are all perfectly united to God, where we are all loved unconditionally as a marriage. That's where everything is headed. And so the purpose of marriage here is to point to that marriage, which means it is a wonderful but temporary gift. Maybe you think Christians harp on about marriage too much. 
They insist awkwardly that it should be for life and you shouldn't just walk out on it. They insist that it's between a man and a woman. They insist it should be faithful. It's not because we're very interested in people's private lives. I promise you, I'd really rather not know. It's because it's supposed to be a pointer to the most important thing that there is. This new world to come that Jesus is bringing. So it matters to us that the sign is pointing in the right direction. In my house at home, there's a photo, several photos of my mum. I don't really want you drawing moustaches on those photos of my mum. Not because photos are a big deal to me, but because I really want you to respect and know and see what my mum looks like. I want you to be pointed to her. And we are serious about marriage here, not because it is the be-all and end-all, it's not, but because it is one of the best ways we get to point people to the way God loves. If we fiddle with it or walk out on it or make it more important than it is, we're drawing a moustache on the photo. Incidentally, I don't have time to talk about this now, but the Bible is very clear that single people are just as able to point to that new reality, just in a different way. But what this means is, if that world is real, there's something more important than whether I get married. There's something more important than whether my marriage is happy. Whether at this moment, if you're married, your marriage is deeply fulfilling or a bit rubbish. Jesus basically says, well, there's something more important. If you're building your life around getting married, building your life married or building your married life about being as happy as possible with each other, you're making something of ultimate importance, which is not of ultimate importance. So what are some implications? For those of us who are at university, is it more important that you leave university having shared the gospel with your friends? or having found the person you're going to spend the rest of your life with. Which is more important? I think Jesus is clear. If you're a Christian and you're looking for someone to marry, is it important that you find a Christian so you're on the same page by pointing to Jesus, or is it important that you find someone you think is hot? I think Jesus is very clear. It's most important. If you're two Christians dating... Is it important that you are, uh, you know, intimate with each other or is it more important than that you're sexually pure? Using the other person's body is not pointing the other person or anyone else to that great, permanent, faithful relationship to come. So I think Jesus is clear what's more important. If you're married, here's the thought. The romantic love between you and your spouse is temporary. One day it'll be over. The love you have for other Christians in your church family, that's the love that begins now and will grow to be perfected and last for eternity. I think we often have those two things that are all way around in importance. In our romance and family-obsessed culture, we're likely to think church is good insofar as it helps my little nuclear family. In fact, your little nuclear family is a temporary good and its goodness is measured by how it points people to and welcomes people to and brings people towards the new creation. 
We're likely to think the measure of a marriage is how happy we are with each other. The truth is the measure of a marriage is the effect it has on those outside it. That's what's really eternally important. Incidentally, I actually think you will be happier if you don't spend your whole married life just staring, with e- staring at each other and thinking about how to bless other people. But it's offensive, isn't it? If you would love to be in a romantic relationship, and this is the reason you can't be, Jesus says, listen, you kind of need to dry your eyes and get on with what matters. Stop being so inward-looking and use the blessing that you have to bless other people. Open the doors of your safe little fortress of marriage and organize your family around the thing that will last forever. It's just easy to see which is more important. An unhappy marriage doesn't mean a marriage is over. In fact, Jesus says your perseverance in it is your opportunity to point to the thing that really matters. It's offensive, isn't it? We're not used to that. When I was growing up, when we used to pray together in our youth group, there was one girl who always used to say, we need to realize our lives matter to God. And what we meant by that is, whatever I'm really worried about, God will join in with me being worried about at the prayer meeting. In fact, what God says is, I do really care about your life, but the way I'm going to help you is by showing you what really matters. So you can cope with the difficult things in your life. Well, there's one last postscript, isn't there, to this encounter about the resurrection. He says to these people in their own Bible, the first five books of the Old Testament, God talks about people who were long dead as if they are alive and with him. He says in verse 26, right from there. The promise that those who die trusting God's promises are more alive than they ever have been with him. It's always been what God does. And that's true. And if it's true, it's important. This promise is often wheeled out, isn't it, at funerals. That old relative, that tragically dead young person, they're with God now. We all feel better. But if that's true... You can't the day after the funeral just go back to your political cause, back to the search for the perfect marriage. If that's true, if that wonderful hope that they are more alive and safe and they know God for eternity the way we wish we did now, if that's true, the day after the funeral, that's more important than the flowers at your wedding or your job interview or the school your kids go to. It's the one who says he is the son of God. The one who claims to be the greatest king ever is saying this matters more. The question is not do I like what he says. The question is, who is it that's saying these things? If he is right, what does it mean to make giving yourself to God more important than changing the world now? What does it mean for the reality that marriage points to being more important than marriage itself? What does it mean to live in the light of the truth that the ones we know who have died are more alive with Jesus than they ever were here? That's the thing we need to think about. If he is, 
who he says he is. Well, let me finish by saying one more thing about authority. There is an authority that comes because the person is important and they know and you have to listen to them. Think paramedic. But there's a different type of authority, isn't there? Think about my dad. When I was young in our house, uh, the rule was you did what dad said. That's not the case anymore. I'm nearly 40. Dad doesn't come around to our house and tell us all what to do. I have my own house and family. And yet I'm still deeply interested in what my dad has to say about life. He does have authority still. It's a different type, though. A sort of moral authority where he doesn't demand that we listen because who he is anymore, but because of all those years of him putting himself first, I'm ready to listen to him. Putting us first, sorry, not putting himself first. I'm ready to listen to him. Now here is Jesus on this tense day in this political ferment. He speaks bluntly to our deepest longings. He's not just waving his power around. I'm the son of God. I'm the greatest king. Listen to me and shut up. Jesus is about to go to his death. To give up his life. To die in our place so that we can know God. He's not just the paramedic authority, although he does have that. But he also has the sort of dad's authority. A long, long eternal record of putting you first. It means it would be right to listen to him. And in a moment, we are going to celebrate communion together, eat the bread, which Jesus says is his body, and drink the wine, which Jesus says is his blood. His very self given up for us, perhaps in the quiet of that moment, as we think about him, That's when to wrestle with him about what you think is most important. The son whose father owns the world, the king who is greater than any other, gives himself away. There's no one safer to trust with what's important to you. Let's pray. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? We praise and thank you, Heavenly Father, that Jesus has the authority that comes from being your son. He has the authority that comes from you establishing him as the ruler over everything. Yet we thank you. He also has the authority to speak to what is best for us because he gave himself up for us. And so we ask for the faith to believe him about what matters most. In Jesus' name, amen.